Frank here, just a quick uh, little note at the beginning of today's episode. We did have a few technical problems, unfortunately, during the, the recording of this episode, so you might hear a little bit less audio quality than usual, particularly on my microphone, um, but I think it's a really interesting conversation, so definitely worth having a listen to anyway. Um, it's not really that bad, I'm just a bit of a stickler for audio quality, I like things to be as crisp as possible, so yeah, if you can bear with that, definitely worth having a listen. So with that said, let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast, my name's Frank and let's get cracking. So I'm happy to have on the show today, Graham Randall. How are you Graham? Thanks for being here. Hi Frank, yeah, thanks for the invitation, I'm happy, I'm happy to be here, thank you. And I recently read that you've uh, just retired from working for the NHS. So first of all, thank you for your service to the NHS and congratulations on your retirement. And what have you got planned for your retirement? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Yeah, I've um, decided just to write full time. I've got a few projects um, lined up that I'm sort of wanting to get my teeth into. Um, And COVID's made, you know, people around the world re-examine what they want from life. And I'm no different in that respect. So I've just sort of decided to um, pack it all in. I've been there 26 years. um, So it's I've done I've done my stint. Uh, It's time to get on with uh, and do something else. Yeah, so I um, I know you as a contributor to uh, Shadows of Your Mind magazine, part of UAP Media UK, aviation enthusiast, and a name that comes up regularly on UFO Twitter. And one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you was the World War Two UFO sightings, which I believe uh, you have written a book about. So for anyone who's not aware, would you like to give a bit of background on who you are and what got you interested in these World War II sightings or Foo Fighters, as they're also known? Yeah, um, so I live in the north of England. Um, I've been interested in aviation, um, UFOs and World War Two from a fairly early age. Um, the, the aviation side of things started from my, my mother buying me airfix kits to keep me quiet from about the age of four uh, or so. And, and reading the instructions and the kind of potted histories about the aircraft that was on the instructions just made me curious about aircraft in general and started learning about them. And that, that interest developed into an interest in World War Two aircraft, but also in World War Two in general, uh, listening to my mother talking about stories from you know when she lived through the war etc so that that's how that side developed um in terms of the ufo angle well that started because i had an interest in science fiction from about the age of eight or nine year old and books by as isaac asimov i was i was reading back then and my mother bought me a book that she thought was another one in these series because they had nice pictures of spacecraft on the front but it turned out to be a book about ufos uh, and she wasn't aware um so I, i had this book that um you know she thought was fiction and i thought was fiction until i started reading it but it turned out to be it was supposed to be fact and it was about spacecraft landing on earth and of course this was amazing because this was effectively the fiction i was reading turning it turning it to fact so it blew my mind so my interest in ufos developed from there because 
I'm, I'm like a sponge for a lot of these things. You know, I read something I'm interested and I want to know more and more about it. So that's how I got into that. Um, the, the Foo Fighters basically started from all those things colliding. So aircraft, World War II and UFOs. Um, and I say, like with COVID, you know, having to re-examine what I want from life, I'd already written one book, and that was about uh, aviation in Siberia. Uh, I visited Siberia in 1992. So I wrote a book about the aircraft that I'd seen there. Uh, and I had this published earlier this year. But at the same time that I was sort of thinking about publishing it, and I had it finished, and it was just sitting, waiting to, to go out, I, I was thinking about what I could write next. Um, and those three interests came to mind, the aircraft, World War II and UFOs in the shape of the Foo Fighters. Um, so it was a fairly easy decision to make in terms of writing about it. But because the information that I was finding out sort of went against the established narrative that you'll see in various books, especially the ones that were written in the 70s and 80s about what the Foo Fighters were and what kind of time frame they came from and, and where they were seen. I was finding that that wasn't the case. There was much more to the story of them than was generally known. Um, so I wanted to tell that story. Um, and in the meantime, when I was gathering the information about this, uh, the um, I, I had I, I dropped a throwaway comment into a conversation with MJ Benias at the debrief, the the American um, news and technology website, and I mentioned about the Foo Fighters, and I was thinking about writing a book, and he said, "Oh, I'd love an article about this." So I went away and, and dropped him a maybe six six seven pages of, of information about the Foo Fighters, which he published, and it got picked up by Christopher Mellon of all people. Um, the the former you know in, uh, Pentagon intelligence official who in in, uh, um, in Obama and and Bush's uh, sorry Clinton's and, and Bush's governments and of course he's a big name on the UFO circuit and for somebody like that to endorse an article about the Foo Fighters it it made me realise there was a possibly an audience out there for this book so that really galvanised me into getting it done so yeah that, that's how that all came about yeah fantastic i can't wait to uh to to read it or um is there actually going to be an audiobook available mm, an audiobook i've never thought about it. there'll be a there's a softback first of all and then a kindle uh it's got so many footnotes in it that it's a it's it's a bit harder to get it out as a kindle book but that'll come out eventually um so and i haven't really thought about an audiobook i suppose you've got to pay people to read it for you um or do it yourself so that might be something i might investigate but i haven't to be honest i haven't thought about that just yet Oh yeah, it'd be great. I, w- I would definitely, uh, definitely be interested in in the audio book side of things. I've got a couple of, um, well, I've got a, a, a very young child in the house and another one on the way. So sitting down to read a book for long periods of time is pretty tough. So audio books definitely help. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's worthy. Like, like you say, it's had the practicalities of getting it done, I suppose, isn't it? And yeah, I can't imagine how, how many hours it'd take to uh, to read through the thing. I've just re- I'm just uh, listening to in plain sight Ross Coulthard's book um, on, on Audible, and it's quite a long time. It's you know it's, it's like twenty hours, twenty odd hours worth uh, of uh, somebody re- uh, well him reading his book. So yeah, it's quite an involved project. I think getting a getting an audio book made of a of a you know a, a few hundred pages. So and and my book's like over five hundred pages. So it might be uh, it might be quite a long project for somebody if they ever want to do an audio or an audio book of it. Yeah, well, funnily enough, that's that's what made me think of it. I'm actually um, listening to In Plain Sight at the moment as well, and it's uh, mm. really handy with it being an, an audio book. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see if you if you manage to get yours done as an audio book. It'd be great if you do. So, but yeah, it's, I've been fascinated by the 
the history of World War Two in particular for a long time, and obviously got a fascination of, of UFOs as well. Hence, the, you know, the podcast. So, and uh, this mm-hmm. is like the two worlds colliding, really. So, I'm definitely uh, interested to learn a lot more from from like somebody like yourself. So, what what kind of shapes were the objects typically in in the sightings that took place during World War Two? Yeah, the, you have the. The, the Foo Fighters themselves, because that was a particular term coined by the Americans in a particular place in the war and at a particular time. So those were um, balls of light. They were just lights in the sky that moved around really quickly and either were seen flying around or, or latched on the tails of aircraft and followed them for, for considerable distances. Um, so they, they were literally just lights and they had no defined kind of shape behind them or whether they were attached to anything, you know, it, it's the jury is still out on that. But I use the, the term Foo Fighters to basically describe everything that was anomalous during the war, uh, in terms, at least in the European theatre of operations, which is what my book's about. It doesn't cover the Pacific. Uh, that's a, a, another project for another time. But in terms of what was seen elsewhere in the European war, the RAF had seen multiple types of and size of objects since about 1942 onwards. So they'd seen things like um, bronze disc-shaped objects. They'd seen um, what things that they called rockets because they had no other term for them. But these were like kind of torpedo-shaped objects without any tail or wings that were flying around. And they weren't that large. You know, they were literally the size of a torpedo. And then you had much bigger things which were torpedo-shaped or zeppelin-shaped, which were in the, uh, which were estimated to be two or 300 feet long. So they had you know, a quite variety of shapes and sizes. There was something else that was seen over the Russian front, which was um, described as an upturned bathtub. So, yeah, you've got a huge range there. Um, so, yeah, that, hopefully that answers your question. There was, a, there was a big variety of things that were seen. Was there any correlation between the certain types of objects appearing in certain, certain countries and things, or is it, does it seem to be a bit more random? It's it's much more random than that. I mean, certain times there were sightings which were you know grouped into the kind of lights or the torpedoes or the rockets and things, but there's no real kind of pattern you can draw from it. Um, early in the war, there was a lot of just lights being seen, and the RAF did try to do some kind of uh, analysis on what was going on because obviously everything that they thought you know thought that was going on back then was a German secret weapon. They had no concept of potential kind of ufos as we would know now so they were trying to work out what kind of weapon it was and, and what it, you know what type of aircraft was behind the lights that were being fo- that were following bombers so they did all this analysis work but they got nowhere uh, be- and you can read these kind of reports in the files in the intelligence files uh, and it, it they they just come out and they're completely stumped. Um, you know, this, they, they hold basically they, they write down that they hold their hands up. You know, just go, yeah, we don't know what's going on, uh, and they, they just stop the analysis because it's not getting them anywhere. So, w- were there any um, noises reported with any of these objects, or was, did they not get close enough to actually be able to pick that up? Yeah, the thing is, that if you were in a bomber at night flying around, it was a very, very noisy atmosphere anyway. So unless something was incredibly loud outside, you wouldn't hear it necessarily. 
Uh, and the same if you're in a fighter aircraft, you know, fly, or a night fighter flying around, you, you'd hear your, your own engines, you'd hear, you know, things creaking and all the groaning from inside the airplane um, and the, the hum of instruments and all the rest of it. You wouldn't necessarily hear a lot going outside. It would have to be incredibly loud for you to pick up on it, like an explosion or, you know, flak going off, bombs exploding, all this kind of thing, or, or, or um, machine gun fire. Um, so sounds from being detected from the air crew themselves and what they report, you don't really get. What you do, however, get in some of the witness descriptions from people on the ground who have seen objects either you know flying around or overhead etc you do occasionally hear uh see recount um accounts of like humming noises or or certain other types of noise like that but they're very few and far between it's mostly just people seeing things they're very very quiet yeah that's 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 pretty pretty creepy there's actually um near where i live there's actually uh a place where basically a zeppelin went across an actual wasn't an unidentified object or anything but it was a like a german air balloon thing went over and they dropped some some bombs out of it i live quite far north and mm-hmm. i think it was one of the most northerly uh, cases of that happening but um that 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 always kind of freaked me out the thought of something silently you know flying overhead and then all of a sudden the bomb drops out of yeah. nowhere but that, that's what kind of made me intrigued as to whether these you know, unexplained objects actually made any noise. But, yeah, interesting. So I was also going to ask, um, were there any clusters of, of sightings in general in, in particular areas or parts of the country, or are they, are they just kind of randomly scattered as well? So I think a lot of it comes down to the records because getting the information from those, it was quite patchy. Um, it depends on the intelligence officers for the squadrons as to how much information went into the unit records. So sometimes I think I was at the mercy of how good a particular staff were at recording information from the missions. So I think that plays a lot of a, you know, a part in uh, determining how much information is out there. But from what data I got and, and what records I've been able to look through, there's certainly places where a lot more sightings were seen and recorded. So you're looking at Western Germany, the kind of area between sort of uh, Cologne, Frankfurt, uh, that part of the Rhine, looking west towards the Belgian border in Aachen uh, and that that particular triangle of land. So there's a lot of sightings over there, sort of late autumn, winter, 44, early 1945. Um, you've got a lot of sightings over the north of Italy, so the Po Valley um, near Bologna. Uh, and they um, stretch from sort of midway through 44 right into 1945 as well. And then I found a whole load of things which have never been reported before. Um, but these happened over the Balkans, so over Romania, uh, Hungary, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and they happened throughout 1944 and into early 1945. So yeah, there are places where there are, you could call them clusters of sightings. Now, whether that's actually indicative of this is where they all congregated and this is where all these things were operating around. Who knows? Because um, aircraft were operating in all, all places in Europe uh, and it just comes down to how good the records are. And you can and even bomber squadrons that were operating over Germany that didn't all record information the same way. And some of them are really sort of sparse in what de- details they cover, whereas others are really, really thorough. And you get a lot of information, and that's where a lot of this, you know, these details that I've put in the book are culled from. So, yeah, um, some of the squadrons that operated elsewhere might have seen things, but they might not have been recorded, and therefore, you know, you're never going to find that information. So, 
where are you actually able to find this information about these uh, sightings? Is the information freely available through FOIA requests, like freedom of information requests, or similar with it being such a long time ago since the war? Funny enough, FOIA is not the place that you you are not the place that you go to to get this information. The information that I've used in the book is freely available through both the National Archives in in London, but also through the uh, Air Force Historical Research Agency in America. And the files that you need, you can you can literally get for free. Um, funnily enough, the some of the RAF records that I was looking for through the National Archives in Britain, it was easier. Uh, to get them through America than it was through the UK, which is a crazy you know, situation um, because some of the records in Britain you, I would have had to actually pay for and I would have to get them to do searches uh, and it costs to do the search and then they can turn around and say, oh, we can't find the files and then you, you lose that money. Uh, and that's even before you start to get either copies sent to you electronically or, or by paper and it can get really expensive. Um, so yeah, some of the things I found actually got I got from free from the Americans, but none of it's through FOIA. Um, you don't need to do that. All, all the historic, all the kind of historic Air Force files that this information is uh, contained in, um, yeah, it, it comes uh, from those particular agencies. Right, right. Is that just with it being such a long time ago then, or? Well, certainly the a long time. You know, they've had a, a program of basically dropping old files into the National Archives from from a long time ago. So it's not like the information needs to be you know accessed through FOIA anymore because it is freely available in the National Archives. And if you do a FOIA for this kind of stuff through the MOD, they'll literally point you to the National Archives and say, this is where you get it from. So, um, you know, you, you don't need to do, you don't need to go down that route. And I think there'd be very little, to be honest, held uh, about Foo Fighters in the in the MOD anyway, because they didn't use that term to start with. Um, and when you look through the intelligence files for this kind of information, they don't use those kind of spectacular kind of phrases. They use quite mundane things like rockets, jets, uh, you know, lights, things that are quite you know quite sound quite ordinary um, looking, whereas the, the Americans call them things like Foo Fighters. So you have a different search te- um, search terms when you go through the Americans. But actually, the, the, the ordinary American uh, night fighter units and their fighter units, you just go through their war diaries uh, and uh, mission logs, and that's where you find all this information. So it, it is reasonably easy to uh, obtain, providing you know what you're looking for. And that's where the difficulty is, because you have to know the squadrons, you have to know the wings, you have to know the theatres of war, you have to know the type of unit structure to be able to find where these files are. It's no good just asking for blanket kind of uh, searches for certain things, because you won't find them that way. So are there any correlations between particular aircraft models and sightings? Like, for example, do you see like more sightings with bomber squads or you know that kind of thing? Well, certainly there's a lot of uh, sightings from bomb squadrons because they were operating over Germany and quite widely um, you know, at the time. So you were always going to see a lot of reports from, from bomber squadrons. But bearing in mind that the, the RAF Bomber Command operated Stirlings, Wellingtons, Halifaxes, you know, Lancasters, it, it's split between the different types. So there's no one particular aircraft type which you see more 
um, more sightings, uh, you know, sort of connected with. However, when you look at the night fighter units and certainly the American units, then they only use two types of aircraft for that duty anyway. So they use the Bristol Bow Fighter, which were cast-offs by the RAF, but they also use their own Northrop P-61 Black Widow, um, especially they use that in Italy and they use that from bases in Belgium. So those particular types of aircraft, you do see a lot of reports from the squadrons that operated those. Uh, but in terms of whether it was just night fighter units or bomber squadrons or fighter squadrons that encountered these things, no, it's all three, um, that they, they all saw them. Um, so the, the, the night squadrons, the, the bomber squadrons, the night fighter squadrons, they, ha- they have their own encounters. But during the day as well, you've got fighter squadrons and, and bomber squadrons, especially American ones, through the day, which saw other things. There weren't balls of light, but there were strange objects. So there's no real kind of correlation between the t- a particular type of aircraft or a particular unit seeing these kind of things. It was, it was spread out quite, quite uh, you know, widely. Yeah, I kind of imagine that probably bomber squads being the type of, um, you know, just the nature of the missions, they, they fly long distances, don't they? So I guess there's, you know, more chance that they're, they're going to observe something. Whereas I guess like, um, you know, like uh, fighters, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a different different thing altogether, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. So um, the other thing I was, uh, another thing I was going to ask is, were there any sightings by uh, German and Japanese uh, forces, particularly interested in whether or not there are any records of this in- included in the information obtained by the Allied forces at the end of the war. Mm. So here, here's the good question. The, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that says that the Allies saw these things and they thought they were German secret weapons, and the Germans saw them and thought they were Allied secret weapons. Now, it's a great story, it's a great line, but when you start to dig in to try and get the German side of things, that's when you start running into roadblocks. There are, well, there's no effective records, that you know, unit records where the Germans are saying, yes, we saw these strange things flying around in the same way that you can see it in the American and the British records. I've not come across anything yet in the German records and I've looked um, that's not to say there is anything because I may have just not found it. And I keep having people telling me that, oh, yes, you know, you can you can see this stuff. But then when you ask them, well, where is it? That's when they start drying up. And that's when you start getting, you know, no answer. Um, oh, it's just like generally known. Well, yeah, okay. But yeah, it's one thing to say it's generally known. But if you can't point me in the direction of a particular file and say that's what you need to look for, then I can't find it. Um, and I have looked for things. Now, that's not to say there are, aren't stories about German pilots coming up against these things. And I've got probably just less than a dozen in the book. However, two or three of them are hoaxes. And I've proved two of them are hoaxes anyway. And a couple more are hoaxes perpetrated by a UFO author, would you believe? So it's a bit sort of dodgy. Um, And some of the other cases don't have much to go on. They're just kind of uh, a location and a rough date. So you don't really get much to check and you can't really go into the records to verify that a particular unit was at a particular place and, you know, they might have been able to see this where they saw them. Uh, It's all a bit vague and it's a bit unfortunate, really, because I would love to have that side of things. I just haven't been able to get it. And for what information I do have, some of it I've been able to disprove. So, you know, it's just wrong. So it's a bit it's a bit strange, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, is that the same with the um, the Japanese pilots and things as well? To be honest, I don't know because the book I've written is literally about the the European experience. So I haven't even looked into the into what happened in the Far East. I've got an idea of what happened out there. I have read about it. And there are some really interesting cases, which I, I hope to cover in a follow-up volume to this when I, when I get around to writing it. But from what I understand, the, the Japanese, they probably did see them themselves. But whether or not that's in any kind of archives is up for debate because I haven't heard of anything. And I don't know what their records are like for looking through because I've never done it yet. So I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. There are photographs which purport to show objects flying around Japanese airplanes. But as far as I'm concerned, they're probably all fakes or photographic defects because that's what they look like. Um, and they're, they're just sort of shown or, or labeled as Foo Fighters. Um, and I've not seen a photograph yet, certainly from the European side, that actually is something that you can go, yeah, okay, that might well be. Because I've seen pictures of, of uh, B-17 Flying Fortresses, for instance, with lights around them on daylight missions and you see these kind of like objects flying around but when you find the original image they're not on that and they've been and the picture's been doctored so um i'm a bit sort of um i'm a bit leery of these kind of things because i think that they're gonna you know that they're, they'll turn out to be fakes or forgeries um or something else and they're not really what they say they are so um yeah i'm i'm sitting on the fence i'm afraid in terms of you know whether they're the photographic evidence actually does it ever exist and in terms of the japanese records i'll 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 cross that bridge when i come to it yeah that could be a good topic for the next book eh oh well that's that's one of the projects in in the future (laughs) yeah um so i believe there's no cases recorded as far as i can find anyway of 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 a craft actually being shot down is 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 that that correct or were there, were there any planes that that came down after a near miss or an actual collision with with a ufo okay so yeah there's i've got one case in the book which there was a i suppose you could call it a near miss and the aircraft fell out the sky um but they managed to recover it and managed to get the engine started again because all the engines failed um and they managed to get home but they had some kind of psychological issues afterwards uh they had some they, they were sort of um treated in a hospital effectively uh for some kind of effect so you call i suppose you could call that some kind of uh a sixth observable it was a physical effect um so yeah that, that's a particular a peculiar case which I've, I've looked into there are instances where some of these lights and objects were shot at by bomber crews, by uh, by air gunners, to no effect. So there was no effect on the actual object that they were firing at, but there was no retaliation either. It was almost just like they were firing and, and the bullets didn't even go through the objects, they just disappeared. So there's that side of things, and there's quite a few cases. And then there are some cases as well later in the war where some weird-looking aircraft that were described as being jets or rocket-powered aircraft but because the Germans didn't fly these particular types of aircraft at that time, they couldn't have been these, but they were reported as such, and the report of sometimes as being shot down. Uh, so th- these are quite peculiar cases, and I've explained these in the book as well. So there are cases where some of them were shot down, but there's never any craft recovered. And there's certainly no records of the Germans actually using these particular airplanes at the time that they were said they were sh- shooting them down. So yeah, it's all very, very strange. But in terms of crashed craft... 
there are there's one story of a of a crash landing. Well, it might be a forced landing, but then it flew off. There's also another story of one being recovered in Russia in 1941, but that's about as far as you go. There's there's very little else, I'm afraid. Wow! So that that's actually a case of of a, of a UFO essentially being coming down and then being forced to take off again. Is is that right? Well, the, there's one story about it. It wasn't necessarily forced down. It might have been mechanical failure because there's no evidence to suggest it was it was like in combat with anything. But it la- it, it landed and it was half buried in the ground in a sand dune uh, when the, the witness came across it, um, and then it, it it took off again. So that's that's a very peculiar story, and that happened in Poland in 1943. So that that's one case, but then there's also a case that goes back to 1941 in Russia, where a craft is supposed to have landed near a large city, and the NK the NKVD, which is the the forerunner to the the KGB, they came along and took it away, uh, or, or whatever the wreckage was. So th- there are stories. There's not much information to go on in in the latter case. There's quite a lot of information to do with a sort of forced landing one. That that's. Um, I've got a bit of information in the book about that, but they're still quite sort of few and far between and very sketchy, these reports. Um, so that, you know, they're not as well kind of documented as, as more current ones are. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's always the, the trouble, isn't it, as well, with just the, purely the fact that it was so long ago, it's always going to be a yeah. case of piecing together bits of information and so on. But I find it kind of equally as fascinating looking at things that happened you know, a long, long time ago as, as imagining things that, that, are, that are happening now and will happen in the future, you know. But um, I also find it really interesting, the, the uh, experimental uh, weapons developed in World War II, like the even things like the V1 and V2 flying bombs. Um, actually, I was talking about like local things like that going on. There was actually another quite famous case where, um, there's a place called Tottington. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a, I think that one was a V2, um, actually flew all the way over and um, actually killed about six people um, on Christmas Eve um, in Tottington. That was one of the flying bombs. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was, a V1, it, was a, it was a V1 flying bomb. I was at the V1, that one. It was a, it was a V1 flying bomb, yeah. It was air launched from a Henkel 111 off the coast of Lincolnshire um, in, in an operation. Um, uh, it was called, uh, and I can't remember the name of the operation, but they launched about uh, about 30 of them um, at various targets over the UK. And that one went off course and ended up near Manchester. It's just a terrifying thought, isn't it, in general, that there were these things yeah. flying across towns and things, you know, Christmas Eve as well. It makes it yeah. even more creepy. Well, yeah. One landed in County Durham, funny enough. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it landed up here. So, uh, yeah, the one landed on a cricket pitch in a village in County Durham from the same night, from the same group of aircraft that air launched them. It went off course. So, yeah, they were all over the country. Yeah, that's right. I think it was like an experimental kind of thing because they were, they were actually firing them from Germany across the channel, weren't they? But then these ones that you're talking about, they were actually fired from aircraft, weren't they, to get them further up north. Yeah, that's right. Was that the idea? Yeah. But, um, yeah, what I was um, thinking though regarding like those kind of weapons, like those those were kind of a psychological sort of component to them, weren't they? The fact that they were flying overhead and they could land anywhere and so on. And do you think 
I mean, obviously you must have looked at this as well, but like how many of the cases of Foo Fighters and UFOs do you think could have actually been some kind of experimental weapons? So um, part of my interest is in German secret weapons. So I'm very familiar with the sort of jet and rocket aircraft that they built. I'm also quite familiar with not just the V1 and V2, but also the anti-aircraft missiles that they had in in development and the service-to-air missiles, the the, the air-to-surface missiles, and other experimental weapons that they used. And I go into quite a few of them in in the book to to actually demonstrate how they couldn't have been uh, the source of a lot of these sightings because they simply didn't have the capability or or the performance to be able to to run rings around uh, the Allied aircraft in the way that these reports describe. So, yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of people have suggested over, over the years that you know it was just they were just seeing V1 or V2 weapons or other experimental weapons. But there's nothing that actually fits the time frame nor the kind of performance that could match the these kind of reports, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think it's kind of the the standard sort of explainer, isn't it, really? You know, oh, it's probably yeah. just experimental weapons kind of thing. But like you say, they're absolutely, the, the whole thing of like the experimental weapons and the psychological component of the, the weapons that they developed is, is pretty fascinating. I was I ended up in the there's a castle in the Lake District um, that I ended up stumbling across years ago, and in this particular castle, they actually tested some kind of light gun which was attached to a tank. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of that particular case, but it apparently never actually made it into battle. Um, but it was just tested in the grounds of this this particular castle. But that that's kind of you know it occurred to me that there could be some kind of light balloon or some kind of similar thing designed to sort of scare or or stun pilots. But like you say, that that wouldn't be that wouldn't explain some of the the unbelievable movements and things that these things do, would it? No, I mean, the Germans had a, um, a psychological, what they call a decoy rocket. It was called a Scheinsignal Rakete, and it could get up to about 8,000 feet, and it, it deployed um, sort of flares and pyrotechnics to try and um, mimic the targeting flares that the RAF Bomber Command used, but it couldn't get high enough uh, to match some of the the, the the witness reports because some of these lights were and, and mystery rockets were flying around at 24,000 feet, sometimes even up to 29,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing that the Germans had could get that high. So it's 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 a quite a mystery as to what was you know what were being seen. And I've gone through quite a lot of these reports in quite in, in some detail in the book and explained why they couldn't be you know this decoy rocket or they couldn't be some of the flak missiles like um, Enzian or or Rheintochter or Wasserfall the 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 German service to air missiles that were under development during the war because they simply just didn't have the capabilities to do that. They didn't have the guidance systems. They didn't have the rocket motors in development that could fly that far or that fast or maneuver that that easily or could just follow follow aircraft that you know in the way that these lights were doing so it just wasn't wasn't possible so yeah yeah i I do go into the explanations quite a lot in the book as to why it simply wasn't possible fascinating yeah i can't wait to read it so let me just completely jump down the rabbit hole for a minute then graham if you don't mind so obviously i've heard things about nazi nazi flying saucers and you know anti-gravity technology and things like that and do you think there's any truth to any of that Right. So the last hundred pages of the book are devoted to flying discs and other types of 
um, purported weapon or device that have been suggested as uh, explanations for the Foo Fighters. So the, the flying discs, um, there's a whole lot of people came out in the 19- early 1950s to suggest that they were part of various uh, disc-shaped projects in, in, in the Reich during the war. And there was about maybe four or five of these people came out and they all said that they were former engineers or technicians or designers and they all allegedly operate, um, worked on or produced these these discs. Now, none of them could, provo- could provide any kind of proof that they did so. They all told lovely stories, but there was not a scrap of evidence either then or now to suggest that actually what they were telling was true. Um, so, you know, to, to have a project, you would have to get official sanction and it wasn't just from the state, from the air ministry. Uh, you had to have patronage from high-ranking German officials because otherwise your project got nowhere in, 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 in Nazi Germany. It was as simple as that. And then, of course, you had to, have, um, had to have personnel to design them, to build them, to test them, to fly them. You had to have factories or workshop space to build them. You had to have materials. You had to be able to pay people. Mm. You had to have testing facilities, you know, wind tunnels, all this kind of stuff. And it was quite an involved project. It wasn't just something you could you could cook up in a garage somewhere and keep it quiet. It was quite you know even the smallest of secret weapon programs. I'm, I'm thinking of the Horton flying uh, the flying wings, for instance, um, the Horton nine jet fighter. It was a very la- and I go into the history of that particular project in the book just to sh- over a couple of pages just to show how difficult it was to get a radical piece of aviation technology actually built and flown. Um, so that and that was you know okay a flying wing was quite radical but a disc was something else entirely and it just wasn't possible um you know in terms of the kind of pe- the people that would need the resources that would need and the testing they would need and not a scrap of evidence remains to even suggest that this these kind of you know co- um, devices were built constructed test tested and flown there's a lot of stories out there but that's all they are um, uh, and I'm afraid, I, I, you know, it's a lovely, they're lovely stories. And at, at one time, I almost would have liked them to be true, but that doesn't mean to say they are true. Um, and I'm afraid, I've, you know, I'm still, I still have to be convinced that anything like that was actually built. And I know a lot of people have tried over the years to convince me. And I've seen people recently on UFO Twitter sending me pictures of things and saying, well, this is, this is a German flying saucer. And I'm going, yeah, it's a model. You know, so and I've seen it before, and I've seen I've seen where this picture comes from, and it, it's a it, it's a model of a flying saucer with a with a German tank with a Panther tank turret stuck underneath it, and you just think, you know, come on, you know, trying to pull my leg here, you know, it, it just it looks preposterous. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I have occasional arguments with with people on Twitter saying, you know, I'm sorry, but what you send me is just rubbish. You know, if you can send me a document in German. Or from somewhere that says, you know, the part of requisition of materials and it went to this location to build this thing or the, uh, drafted in some technicians to build this project uh, or, or there's a request for wind tunnel um, um, sort of testing at the LFA, the Vulcan Road, where they tested all this kind of technology in wind tunnels, then I'll accept it. But other than that, no, I'm sorry. It's all just, it's all rubbish. So that, that's as far as that goes. Yeah. If you're going to get into the things like the bell, you know, the, the anti-gravity device in, in that underground facility in Poland, yeah, okay, the, the jury's out on that one as well. You know, that, that comes down to one person who in Poland who effectively told that story based on evidence that he suggested came from a single source um, from a from a guy who was in the SS, who was a police, what they call a police leader in the SS, who then got carted off to Norway 
before all this kicked off. So, you know, you, you get, you've got to wonder sometimes how reliable all this information is and whether it's just coming out of, you know, sort of people who are, are like to tell stories, basically, and they get perpetuated as myths. And then the myths turn into, into stories and then alleged fact. So it goes from there, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it's, uh, you, you know, it's very tempting to want to go down the path of believing that, that you know, these mm. things existed and whatnot. But my, my thinking with it is that if the Nazis actually had some kind of technology, maybe they, I think maybe they looked into it because they looked into a lot of things, didn't they? Like they were clutching at straws, especially towards the end, to try anything that that give them the edge. But if they actually had the capability to fly some kind of craft doing the kind of manoeuvres that the UFOs that were sighted were able to do, surely they would have used that and actually used it to turn the tide of, of the war, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, you, you think so. But also, people sort of forget or, or don't understand that the last sort of six months of the war, the Germans were going effectively backwards in terms of technology. They'd got to a high point at the end of 1944 where they were trying all these new secret weapons, so jet and rocket fighters. But as the war went on and into the closing months of 44, they were getting actually quite desperate. And if you look at the sort of... Uh, competitions amongst the aircraft manufacturers to produce new radical aircraft. In terms of what they were asking the, the state, the air ministry were asking them to provide, they were going backwards. So they were going back to things like pulse jets, which was the, the engine that powered the V1 flying bomb. And it was already proved by that stage that you couldn't power a, an aircraft, a fighter aircraft, with a pulse jet because it couldn't take off with one because you have to have them flying at a certain speed before a pulse jet becomes efficient. That's why the V1 had to be catapulted off a, off a launcher. Um, but they were still coming up with these designs that would only be used with pulse jets rather than turbojets or rockets. But they were expecting them to work as well, and they were expecting to build all these cheap little fighters very quickly with slave labor, with pulse jets on them, and then field them against American bombers. And that was like a desperation tactic. So they had this mindset where they were just trying to push things out as quickly as possible with a minimum of technology just to get a fleet of aircraft out there that could hopefully turn the tide in their failure, in their favor, rather. But a lot of the tanks as well and the machine guns, they were going back to basics in terms of stripping them down and making them easier to produce uh, with less um, kind of complications. So the chassis were becoming less complicated. The machine guns and some of the assault weapons were being stripped down to basics in order to get them to just get them out into the field as quick as possible. A lot of these new projects. So rather than going to complex technology like flying discs, in the last months of the war, they were actually going back to earlier principles just so they could get things out as quick as possible to try and turn the tide. So, you know, that's another kind of thing that people have to look at. I think it's just impossible to sort of conceive that they had these really radical programs, um, you know, that they, were, they, were, they must have had to be able to throw a hell of a lot of money and resources at just to get a flying disc flying. Um, and it was, it, it is, it's just preposterous, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, fascinating. Really appreciate your viewpoint on it, and I'll definitely be uh, definitely be looking forward to, to reading the book and getting into it in a bit more detail. So, uh, are you okay for time if I give a few more questions? Yeah, carry on, crack on. Yeah. So I've got a few questions just about the UFO topic in in general, really. Um, so I have to ask because there's a few listeners that that will definitely want to to hear your uh, opinion on this as well, especially because this last. Um, couple of weeks, or last week in particular, I've been discussing the uh, Tic Tac FLIR video, and obviously with your, um, you know, uh, aviation kind of knowledge, um, does it 
in your opinion, does it actually, the object, does it rapidly accelerate at the end of the video or do you think that's just an illusion caused by the camera losing lock, kind of like as, as Mick West describes? What's your take on it? So I'm not a FLIR expert by any means and I'm certainly not like an image analysis expert either. So at the end of the day, I can only go in what my gut tells me. Um, and that, as from the day one, from the first day I saw that image, it looked like it, 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 you know, departed off the left-hand side of the screen very rapidly, and I still think that. And until somebody comes along with a definitive answer to that particular question, then that's what I think. Um, now it might be wrong, and it might be, you know, it's something quite like you know mundane as an explanation, but that's how I look at it. And I, at the moment, I can't. I've not seen anything that comes to me and says, yeah, okay, that's a, a really definitive answer to something else going on. But if somebody could, does come up that one day and says, you know, Graham, that's the explanation and here's why and takes me right through it. And, you know, I think, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Then I might change my mind. But at the moment, no, it, it does. As far as I'm concerned, it just shoots off to the left. Yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of gone back and forth on it a little bit, and you know, obviously, it's I know it's quite an old case and so on, but you know, for me, it's such an important case. It's kind of worth going into to try and figure out whether or not the movement, because that's the really compelling part of that video, isn't it? When it shoots off, mm, it is. Yeah, and Mick West's kind of um, you know explanation for it is that the, the the camera actually loses lock slightly and you can see the little bars the the reticle uh, you know around the object as the camera actually changes modes it they kind of widen slightly and and, and i think that the thinking behind it is that that's slightly losing lock and then at the end when it changes mode again it loses lock even more and then that causes the object to like continue on its path um, and you know look like it's shooting off to the left so you don't think there's much to that particular theory then No, for, again, from what I what I see of it, 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 to me, it looks like it shoots out. But I'm again, I'm no expert, so I, I, you know, it's not as if I'm I, I necessarily know what I'm talking about. It's just what it looks to me on on that on that particular image, and that's what it seems to do. Yes, okay, the 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 the, the reticles actually do move, but that's part and parcel of the flare, as far as I understand it. Uh, but in terms of whether it breaks lock uh, because it shoots off or breaks lock because there's something wrong or something you know going on with the flare itself, I can't say. But to me, it just looks like it flies off uh, to the left. But again, you know, if somebody comes up with a you know a, a perfect explanation one day, then I'll, you know I'm, I'm happy to hold my hands up and say, yeah, I've got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's um. It's a tough one. It's a, my gut feeling initially with it was that it does shoot off and it rapidly accelerates, and because it, it does, it does lose the lock. I think whichever way you look at it, the bars widen and it's lost lock. But it's, I think the thing is, is whether it lost the lock because of the changing of the camera mode or because of the actual acceleration of the object. And um, I think particularly after seeing Chad Underwood's uh, interview that he did with Jeremy Corbell like a couple of days ago. I mean, he pretty clearly says that it shoots off to the left and that's what causes yeah. the loss of the lock. And then there's, there's interviews in the past with um, Kevin Day where he's actually described seeing the motion of the object actually moving um, on, on radar, which which 
you know, everybody's kind of account does seem to point towards the fact that it does shoot off to the left. So that's kind of like you said, I pretty much agree with you. I think I'm currently, that's my thinking on it. It does shoot off to the left, but totally open to hearing, um, you know, an alternative explanation if one comes forward. Um, so, yeah, thanks for your thoughts on that. Um, another one that I'd be interested to hear what you think of is what, what's your take on the the consciousness aspect of the UFO topic, like uh, C5 and human-initiated contact and things like that? What, what do you think is going on there? Oh, I'm going to disappoint you here because I've got no real opinion on it. Um, I mean, I say that because I've got no experience in it. And it's not that I haven't got an interest in it. It's it's more to do with, because ufology and everything combined with it, it's such a wide field. You've only got so much time to be able to spend on you know certain aspects of it. Um, so my interest doesn't really stretch into CE5. It, there's clearly something to it because enough people suggest you know, they've seen things or they've experienced things. So there must be, you know, some some truth in it or, or something that's going on that people can't necessarily explain. But then unfortunately, because CE5 has um, a certain character that's involved in it who may or may not be sort of telling the entire truth. And there's um, stories about you know, friends in the desert firing off flares on, on demand sort of thing to satisfy people's, you know, sort of curiosity, then it, it, it clouds it a bit in terms of, you know, whether it, it's all truthful or if there is anything to it or not. So at the end of the day, I don't know. Um, I don't read enough about it to be able to give a, you know, a hard and fast opinion on, on, on what it's all about. In terms of what I think, yeah, there's probably something to it in the end of the day, but I haven't looked into it um, you know, deeply enough to be able to really form any particular uh, opinion on it um, you know, that, that would hold water at all or be a, that, that interesting, I'm afraid. So sorry about that. Oh yeah, no, 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 not to worry. It's uh, interesting to to hear your thoughts. I was just kind of curious as to whether or not there could be any because there's sort of like orbs, aren't they? Really, when when you see the the mm. more kind of like credible videos of um, C five events and things like that. Obviously, like you say, there are some definite dubious ones out there, which could very well be flares, and in fact, in some cases, almost certainly are. But there's also some other ones where you know there's kind of glowing orbs, which seem to change direction and do all kinds of things and it, it does um does make me wonder if you know there's quite a similar isn't it really the orb thing in, in some of the ce5 videos similar sounding anyway to the some of the uh, foo fighter type of sightings yeah i mean there could be some correlation again it's you know it's not something i've actually looked into um because i think at the moment we can't really so uh, I've not been able to work out what's going on with CE5 in the little bits that I've actually read or tried to understand about it. So I haven't been able to write, um, you know, to come up with any particular link between them and the Foo Fighters. And, and bear in mind, the Foo Fighters were much kind of like they were following aircraft around rather than sort of, I don't know, flying around, you know, just generally not necessarily interacting with people. But then again, I, I don't know enough about C5 to be able to give any kind of, you know, proper determination. And anything I would say about it would just be conjecture or, or just coming out of out the top of my head at the moment. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not really any, you know, the, the best person to ask about it, I'm afraid. Yeah, fair enough, man. No, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, area that I'm just kind of delving into and, and getting more into at the moment. So, um, yeah, kind of a similar similar situation to yourself, really. So another one then is, 
if if we assume that the UFOs that we actually see in the, in the skies, you know, now, um, you know, and and have done for however many decades, depending on how you look at it, if we assume that these things actually are some kind of a non-human intelligence, do you think the represent any kind of a threat to humans? How, uh, people talk about the threat narrative and, and you know and that side of things. What, what's your thoughts on that? I suppose if you're, a, I mean, rather than me, if you're like a military or an intelligence kind of like entity, then anything that you don't understand or don't know about, you're probably going to assume it's some kind of threat until you know otherwise. And that's possibly just like a standard doctrine that, you know, the military and the intelligence world have. Uh, and based on the, the history of the human world, then that's understandable. Um, now, it, that might be the case, you know, that there could be some kind of threat, but alternatively there might not be. But it's because we don't know enough about what's going on. And those of us outside the military and intelligence world, we can only go on what we read from other people's experiences and, in some cases, our own experiences for those of us, um, you know, not me, but people who have had, you know, close-up and personal experiences with, um, with, you know, with, well, effectively aliens, if you like. So they're the only sort of accounts that we can use to determine what we think's going on. And then the little snippets of information we get out of the military and in the intelligence world as well. Um, as to whether they are a threat or, or not, again, we don't have enough information to tell at the moment. You know, we'll know one day, one way or another, I guess, uh, if that's the case. But I suspect that um, the military and the intelligence people don't know enough yet either. Um, you know, my, my thoughts have always been that in terms of UFOs, that they, they know some things and they've got more knowledge than we do, but that knowledge doesn't actually give them wisdom in terms of knowing exactly what's happening. And, and the way I look at it is that they know more than we do, but it's not getting them anywhere. Um, and they're still waiting for things to happen in terms of what actually is is going on, um, but you know, as to, and then that will determine how they react once things get to a point where, you know, they they know a lot more about what's happening and they they can then pro- positively identify what's at stake here and what's going on, uh, and that'll be long before we do. We, we'll only hear about it on the news or if something you know major happens. I'm afraid. Um, so answering whether or not there's a threat narrative uh, in play as far as we're concerned you know, in the public then you know we can only go on what information we hear but I, I guess the military intelligence world not just in america but in britain and russia china etc i'm sure they go on the sort of pr- on the principle that until they know more it's a possible threat yeah that's the thing i mean a lot of people kind of disagree with the, the you know the, the threat um thing like the, the government sort of frame it as a threat but i mean you know there's the old classic thing isn't there of like they've, they've never hurt us so far you know these things seem to be flying around with unbelievable abilities but they've never hurt us but one one thing i think about with that is like a bit of an analogy if you saw some kind of like very powerful individual like some heavyweight champion boxer or something pacing up and down outside your house it wouldn't be very reassuring if somebody said, well, he's, he's never attacked anyone so far. You know, you'd still kind of want to know what his motivation was, wouldn't you? But, like, if you had to kind of say, what what, what well, would yeah. your best guess be at this point? You see, 
I again, I'm like a lot of people. I simply, you know, I've got ideas, but I've got no idea in terms of definitely what's happening. Um, so I still think they're at the point where they genuinely don't know what's happening. They've got more information than we do, but in terms of how that translates into absolute knowledge and cast iron knowledge of what's going on and what the potential issues are going to be in the future, I don't think they're at that position yet. So therefore, we can't be either. I think the people who say that they have the answers and they know one way or another that there's definitely a threat you know, posed by these or there's no threat at all, I don't think they I don't think they necessarily, you know, sort of, you know, know exactly what the score is. I don't think they can know uh, because, you know, people who say they're an expert in ufology, well, then you know, there's no experts in this in this game. I'm afraid people people come up with all sorts of ideas and theories, but I'm afraid at the moment that's really all they are. Um, until we get a lot more information and a lot more evidence, I'm afraid we're still sort of casting around in the dark trying to find answers. So I can't really give you any kind of, you know, sort of information as to what's going on because my mine is simply an opinion and it's just as valid or, or, or you know, as invalid as anybody else's. Um, but my best guess, I guess, is just that, you know, we're at the stage where we're still collecting information or the people like, you know, the military and the intelligence world, they're still collecting details, data, all the rest of it. But they're not, they're not much further down the road than we are in terms of being able to work out what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's something I go on about all the time on the podcast is, is you know, it's all about data. You know, that's what we need, isn't it? We need to be able to get data, analyse data, and the more of that we get, the, the closer we are to actually understanding what's going on. And there is a lot of, you know, a lot more openness, a lot more openness. Not, we, you know, it'd be nice to have even more. There's a lot more of that openness coming from the government and there's these new initiatives like the Galileo project, etc., outside of the government trying to get more data. So it'd be exciting to see what the next few years uh, bring. So I think that's about all we've got time for, Graham. So I don't know if you want to just perhaps um, say a little bit about your book and when it's going to be available um, and where people can find you on uh, social media just before we wrap up. Yeah, thanks. Um, so if you look at uh, Border750, which is my Twitter handle, there's a, a link tree reference in there where you can um, you can basically look at all the things I've written for various platforms over the years. Um, as far as the book is concerned, it's going to be called UFOs Before Roswell. And it is hopefully due in the next few weeks. Um, I'm just waiting on a couple of things to be ironed out and then it goes out. So the so announcement should hopefully come in in the next fortnight or so as to uh, when it will be available and, and where from. Okay, great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'll uh, let you get on with the rest of your evening. All right, so that's what all we've got time for in today's show. So don't forget you can get me on Twitter as always on at UFO Thinker. It's always nice to hear from people about the uh, the things we've discussed on the episode there. Or if you've got any questions or anything, that's the best way to get in touch. And um, I've got some more uh, pretty exciting guests coming up on the show. I'm going to get back to some speculation type episodes as well over the coming weeks. So keep, keep a lookout for those new episodes and uh, hopefully see you guys next time. You have broken the podcast. podcast.